the reason for the first murder in human history was religion. Cain and Abel, two sons of Adam and Eve, brought an offering, each brought an offering to the Lord. One he accepted, the other he rejected. Cain, the one who suffered the rejection, was very angry and took it out on his brother. He murdered Abel. This story tells us, if we will only learn from history, something important which knocks on the head two myths which are increasingly being promoted in our multicultural, multi-faith society. One, that all religions are essentially the same and are equally acceptable to God. Rather, if we take the Bible seriously, we learn that God accepts some ways of approaching Him and He rejects others. If this is the case, then it's vital that we approach God in ways that are acceptable to Him. However, this was and is not acceptable to most people. And in consequence, knocks on the head another popular myth. Secondly, that religion leads to peace and harmony between people and nations and within society. No, it inevitably leads to conflict and sadly, even to murder. This was true with the first murder in human history. It is also true of the worst murder in human history when God came among us in the person of his son Jesus and was murdered. And the reason he was murdered was religion. So in this account in Mark's Gospel, it's not surprising that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in those early days as he set out on his tours around Israel preaching and teaching, healing the sick, that he ran into problems and opposition. And this opposition came from the religious leaders of Israel. If you were here last week, we saw the first example Mark records. Where the teachers of the law were deeply offended by Jesus. Not by what he did, healing a paralyzed man, but by what he said to him, your sins are forgiven. This was something only God could do, and so they accused him of blasphemy. And as we come to our passage this morning, we see that further controversy soon ensues, so that by chapter 3, verse 6, they are already plotting to murder Jesus. And we need to understand why. And this morning we look at Jesus and how he responds to this growing controversy. So as Nori told us with the children, let's with God's help try and think about this under the theme, Challenging the Critics. It will help to have a Bible right in front of you as we go through uh, the passage before us. We have four different incidents described here. But all of them focus on the same issue. The essential question here, as in this whole gospel, the most important question in the world is this. Who is Jesus? And I want to suggest to you that in this passage, there are three claims that Jesus makes about himself. So let's look at each of them in turn. First of all, the story of the calling of Levi, which you find in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And Jesus in this 
says about himself, he says he's like a doctor. Let me suggest to you, if you can excuse the pun, it will help you to remember it. Jesus says he is the sin doctor. This is a story about a taxman. Like our own taxman, for death and taxes are constant in every society, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, worked for the government by collecting taxes. He was more like, actually, a customs and excise man. For he collected taxes from the travellers who passed by his tax booth on the road that ran by the side of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, outside the town of Capernaum. It was, in fact, a prime site for collecting taxes. If you know your geography, and you can manage to read the map on the screen, if you look at where Capernaum is, it was at a major crossroads. The great road of the sea ran from the north in Syria, in the city of Damascus, way down, passed through Galilee, past the tax booth, way down to North Africa, to Egypt. And then there was another road that crossed from west to east, from the Mediterranean coast, the port of Acre, or Akko, as it's known in those days, right across to Arabia. So this guy, Levi, had a prime site in his tax booth. Galilee was the crossroads. However, there were some marked differences between Levi and our own tax men, or customs and excise officials. Although Levi actually lived in a region that was then governed by an unsavory character called Herod Antipas, in fact, the power behind his throne, the power behind every authority in the whole region was the mighty Roman Empire. And the Romans delegated responsibility for collecting taxes to the highest bidder. You, you put in an auction to collect taxes. These people were actually called tax farmers. And the, the guy who bought the right to collect taxes, he then portioned it out and sold it on to other people down the line. Till eventually, at the bottom of the line, you got the actual people who collected the taxes like Levi. Now you know what happened. Everybody took his own cut down the line and added on as much as he could squeeze out of the poor people below him. Now the Romans weren't bothered about this as long as they got their share. But tax collectors were uniformly regarded in society as swindlers. But for the Jews, their reputation was even worse. Because they were working really for the Romans, they were regarded as collaborators with the despised occupying forces. So, tax collectors were banned from the synagogue. We lived in the first century. We wouldn't let any tax collectors in Charlotte Chapel. Now, I know some of you work for Inland Revenue. I'm not saying that at all. You're very welcome. You have a job to do, and we all respect you for it, even though we wouldn't choose to pay them if we didn't have to. But anyway, in those days, their character was such that they were banned from the synagogue. As far as God was concerned, if you were a tax collector... You were lumped together with people like drunkards and prostitutes and thieves, the dregs of society. In fact, they were all pigeonholed together under one name. They were all called sinners. And such was Levi. And you need to know that in order to understand the story and what happens. Okay, Jesus of Nazareth, this new teacher, is the talk of the town. The town of Capernaum, where he'd made his base. So one day... As was his custom, he set out walking round the road that went round the Lake of Galilee. And as was the custom in those days, teachers would walk and talk and teach as they walked along. 
I kind of move around a bit in this pulpit, but I can't imagine doing that, but that's what they did in those days. And the crowds followed along, hanging on their every word. And so on this particular day, they're walking along, you can imagine the scene, I'm sure, as they're walking along, they come past the tax booth, and there's Levi sitting, collecting his taxes. Much to everyone's amazement, Jesus goes up to Levi, for he has something to declare. Not goods, but an invitation. This man, Levi, a swindler, a collaborator, a sinner, is called by Jesus. Verse 14, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Levi, without hesitation, gets up from his tax booth, imagine it, and he walks away. He never can go back. Not like Peter and Andrew, who can go back to their fishing if things don't work out too well, because there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. Levi takes this decisive step and his life is changed forever. He becomes one of the apostles of Jesus. Almost everyone believes that this is the same man who is also called Matthew. He had two names, Levi or Matthew. Many people believe he's the author of the first gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, all of this would come later, but on this particular day, it was such a fantastic moment for Matthew that he'd been called by Jesus to follow Jesus that he simply wants to celebrate by throwing a party. And so he invites his friends to his home, the first evangelistic dinner in the New Testament, with Jesus as the chief guest. Now, naturally, if you're a tax collector like this and you want your friends to come along, guess who your friends are? Other tax collectors and other sinners. Jesus not only calls Levi... But the second surprise, Jesus joins in the celebration dinner with Levi and his friends. Now, to share a meal in the East, then and still now, is not just a matter of eating, you know, would you like a meal? It's a matter of social acceptance, if you accept the invitation. So the actions of Jesus are totally incomprehensible to the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, verse 16, said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They are horrified. Now, if you were here last week, we've already met the teachers of the law. Those people who studied the law of Moses, the first five books in our Old Testament, and tried to apply them to life in every detail. Now we meet an even more elite group who were called the Pharisees. There were only a small group, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says there were around 6,000 in total in Jerusalem at this time. But their influence far outweighed their size. They were regarded by the general population as the spiritual elite, the leaders of the nation of Israel. The origin of the name Pharisee is not absolutely certain, but it probably comes from a word that means separate or separated. And they were separatists in their convictions. It was Jesus who denounced them, of course, as hypocrites, as play actors. But what we need to realize is that they were not only hypocritical, they were hypercritical. They wanted to do all they could to abstain from any minute action that might pollute themselves. If they had had, as our American friends love doing, if they had had a life verse, it would have been Leviticus 19 verse 2. No, most of you don't know what it is. They would. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy. He cannot look on sin. He cannot bear to see sin. He's different, set apart. And his people are meant to be like God. 
So if you want to be holy, what do you do? You abstain from any possible contact, from anything or anyone that might make you unholy. And that's what they believed and practiced. They certainly weren't in this party that Levi threw. They were standing outside, muttering to themselves and saying, how on earth can this man, who says he's come from God, how on earth can he mix with people like this? This is just totally, totally off the wall. Impossible. Terrible. Horrible. How can he possibly represent God? Now, notice how Jesus responds by challenging his critics. Verse 17 is a very important verse. On hearing this, what they were saying, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. One famous commentator, C.E.B. Cranfield, writes, For Jesus to refuse to have dealings with the disreputable would be as absurd as a doctor to refuse to have anything to do with the sick. He has come on purpose to call sinners. And the disreputable are obviously members of that class. Now, let me say two things about this that apply to us. Here's the first. This is good news for bad people. For tax collectors like Levi and sinners. And for those of us this morning who maybe only in our heart of hearts deep down know that we're not good people. Maybe even this morning you're feeling uncomfortable and thinking, if the people here only knew, if you could put on the screen what I did this week, or what I'm thinking, even now maybe, I don't know, I would be covered in shame and would run away from this place. And Jesus is good news. Because he says, I'm, I'm the sin doctor. I've not come to call people who think they're good. I've come to call sinners. That's why sinners welcomed him. And invited him to parties. You see, in our need... In our sin, the good news, this is why the Christian message is called gospel, which means good news. It's good news for bad people, because it's good news for people who know that they're estranged from God, they've gone their own way, that they're failures, moral, moral failures. And Jesus calls us to leave our old way of life and to follow him. In his gospel, Mark adds the little words, repentance, that Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. But it goes without saying. The good news is, that we saw right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel is, repent and believe the good news. To repent means to leave your old way of life. And for Matthew, this meant he had to leave his tax collecting, because it was a rotten business. It was a decisive step, with no going back. But it was a life that he never regretted. And I simply want to say to you this morning, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is good news for you. It's good news for bad people. And here's the best news of all. We don't have to go to the sin doctor's surgery, but he makes home visits. Isn't that good news? That's why he came into the world. Jesus said, I have come. The word come here is always used by Jesus, a sense of divine mission. I have come down to earth, where we are, in our need, in our sin, to seek and save the lost. I have come to call sinners. The repentance. Good news for bad people. But here's the other side of it. This is bad news for good people. You see, the, the Pharisees believed something different. And in a sense, they were right. They believed that... They believed 
that the sick could only come to God once they were healthy and holy. You couldn't be acceptable to God unless you were healthy and holy. And so they said, if that's the case, we've got to do all we possibly can to make ourselves acceptable to God. Because unless we do this, God will never accept us. And the problem with that is, yeah, that's absolutely right. The problem is, none of us can make it. None of us are good enough to qualify. And that's why God sent his son, recognizing that we couldn't do that. Recognizing that we were so sick, there's no way we could heal ourselves. God sent his son as a sin doctor into our world. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous. He wasn't saying some people are good enough already. He's saying people who think that they're good enough don't think they need a doctor. They think they're fit and well. In fact, the Pharisees described themselves as the righteous. And everybody else they designated as the sinners. So they didn't see a need of a doctor. And so they rejected Jesus. I simply ask you, which category do you fall in? Have you repented and believed the good news? This is fundamental. It's the basis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's our theme, following Jesus. Here's one little test by which you can tell if you have. The mark of those who are followers of Jesus is that like Levi, they want all their friends to meet Jesus as well. I think it's a worrying fact. I've often thought about it for myself as well as anyone else. I think it's a worrying fact that one of the main things, Christians are very rarely accused of one of the main things Jesus was accused of, of mixing with the wrong kind of people. And while the Pharisees looked down on sinners, Jesus looked out for sinners. And I want to ask us as a church, are we more like Jesus? Or are we more like the Pharisees? Yes, we are called by Jesus to be distinctive, to be the salt of the earth. But we're also called to be visible, to be the light of the world. Our message is one of good news for bad people. One writer says, the church must bring Jesus to people, not simply people to Jesus. And there is a difference. Okay, that's the first point of controversy in which Jesus says he's the sin doctor. Now, notice as it moves on, Jesus says something else about himself. He compares himself to a bridegroom at a wedding, that he is the bridegroom. Uh, Look at verse 18. Jesus asked a question about the religious practices of his disciples. How is it that John's, that's John the Baptist's disciples, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, we don't know why the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. It may well have been because John had already been arrested by Herod, was in prison, likely to be executed, and they were very sad about it, and naturally enough, they fasted. We do know that the Pharisees fasted very regularly. Pharisees fasted twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, in actual fact, the law of Moses that they followed, if you, you can look it up in the book of Leviticus if you like, the law of Moses actually prescribed only one fast, once a year, on one day, the Day of Atonement. However, In the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament record, people fasted on occasions of great sadness or crisis. Uh, Take an example. If you look at the little book of Esther in the Old Testament, it's a fascinating little book, the only one that doesn't mention God by name. Uh, If you look at that book, uh, 
the Persian king sent out a decree that all the Jews should be executed on a particular day. And we read that the Jews, there was great mourning with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. That's Esther chapter 4 verse 3. And fasting had become very prominent when the Jewish people had been carried off into exile in Babylon. And they read the Old Testament quite rightly. You know that wonderful verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 about if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek, their, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. And the people in exile said, we've got to do something about our spiritual state. We need to take it seriously. Let's fast and pray and ask God to do something. And eventually they came back to Israel, which is where they were when Jesus was around in the first century. But they were still under the occupying forces of Rome. They weren't free. And so the Pharisees, you can understand this, try and understand their mind. They said, look, things are not right. We've got to pray. We've got to fast. Okay, by the time of Jesus, it had become a bit of a show for them. It's probably no coincidence that Mondays and Thursdays were market days in Jerusalem, so they got maximum publicity when they went around with mournful white faces fasting and telling everybody about it. But behind what they were doing was a divine warrant. It's the kind of thing people say today. If we want revival, we should be more serious. We should pray. Let's fast. Fasting is praying for God to intervene. So along comes this new religious teacher. And what does he do? He doesn't fast at all. In fact, he does the opposite. Instead of fasting, he's feasting. Going to parties. With disreputable people. It just doesn't add up. Why? And notice the answer of Jesus, verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have them, him with them. Now, again, you need to understand a bit about Eastern wedding practices. Jesus says he's like a bridegroom at an Eastern wedding. In those days, the preparations would be made, invitations were sent out, and then the, the, the final exciting bit... You know, in our churches we play, here comes the bride. Well, in Eastern weddings they played, here comes the bridegroom. All right? And when the bridegroom came, the party began. And after the wedding, you know what happened? Well, in our society, the, the bride and bridegroom, the newly married couple, they go off on a honeymoon for a week or two. Well, in the East they didn't do that. They stayed at their new home and they had a big party and celebrated. And for a week or so, everybody came to the house and joined in their celebrations. Not sure it's not a better idea, but anyway, that's 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 by the by. Now, what is Jesus saying? He says, "I'm the long-awaited bridegroom. I finally arrived. So it's natural that we should have a big party." You see, you guys, you've been fasting and praying for God to do something, to step into society, to send His Messiah, His Deliverer. Here's the great news: I've arrived. You don't need to fast anymore. It's time for a celebration. You know, and they sang those wonderful songs like the one we painfully worked our way through before, you know, come on and you know, we should have been dancing and clapping our hands, never mind. God has responded to the fasts and prayers of his people and sent his son. So instead of fasting, Jesus said, there should be feasting because God has intervened. Now, notice what he's saying. He's not saying that his people will never fast. In fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, I think it is, uh, Jesus describes chapter uh, about his followers and describes how they should fast, not like the Pharisees, and put on a big show about it. 
And Jesus says there will come a time, speaking for the first time of his suffering and death, which will come, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then it will be appropriate to fast. But not now, says Jesus. Now is the time for celebrating the good news. Here comes the bridegroom. He's arrived. But the Pharisees won't join in the party. Why? Because they don't recognize and accept who Jesus really is. Here's the key issue again. Who is Jesus? Is he really who he claims to be? Yea or nay? Your answer will determine whether you're a pastor or a feaster. Such words. Tragically, they will not see that he's the answer to their prayers. And the next two incidents only serve to harden their hearts and their determination to do away with Jesus. So thirdly and finally, we look at the issue of the Sabbath. And Jesus says a third thing about himself, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 2, verse 23, right through to chapter 3, verse 6. These two incidents focus on the same issue, on Sabbath observance. Now, we're making our way through the Ten Commandments. Mike Parker is preaching this evening on the Second Commandment. And in a few weeks' time, we'll be looking at the Fourth Commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall do no work. That was God's command to his people. Now, it seemed very straightforward until you asked the question, what is work? What constitutes work? What activities are regarded as work? And the religious leaders, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they'd spent generations trying to work this question out. How many yards would you walk before it ended up being work? How much could you carry, what weight could you carry that made it a burden that you were carrying and doing work rather than just something that was lighter in weight? And they asked all these complicated questions. By the time of Jesus, they divided work into 39 classes, each with six subsections. And every generation, you got new situations. I recall the last time I preached on this subject, it was actually in the news that very week, the chief rabbi in Israel had declared, and this isn't a joke, it's serious, the chief rabbi in Israel had declared that throwing snowballs on a Sabbath constituted breaking the Sabbath, unless you got permission from the people you were throwing the snowball at, which seems to me pretty counterproductive. Now, now it does seem funny until you think, hang on a minute, it is funny, but these people are trying to apply God's law seriously. They want to be sure that what I'm doing is not breaking God's law. So the issue for them was, if Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, then he's broken God's law and he cannot in any way represent God, let alone be the Son of God or the Messiah. Is Jesus guilty of breaking God's law? So, here's, this, here's this Jesus and his disciples. They're out on a walk one Sabbath day and they're walking through a cornfield. And the disciples, as they're going along, pick some ears of corn. Luke tells in his gospel, they pick the ears of corn and rub them, the husks off, and ate them. It's number three of the 39 classes of work, reaping, in the manual. It's breaking God's law. They're not being accused of stealing. When you walk through a cornfield, you were allowed to eat as much as you liked as long as you didn't bring a sickle along and start chopping it and putting it in a basket. No, they were being accused of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus is their master. Why is he not doing anything about it? There he is walking along. These disciples, they're breaking the law of God. They're reaping on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath keeping in the law was a capital offence. Although they weren't allowed to practice in the first century, but it was worthy of death. 
However, the law said, first time, only a yellow card. A warning. But immediately comes a second case, which we'll see merits a red card in the eyes of the Pharisees. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Jesus again in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He regularly went to the synagogue. And in the congregation is a man with a shriveled hand, paralyzed by some sort of illness or injury and atrophied from use. Useless. Now, it's a well-known fact by now that Jesus has the power to heal the sick. He's recently healed a man whose whole body was paralyzed, so presumably a hand is not too difficult for him. But the problem is that today is the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath rule book said you could heal people on a Sabbath day providing that their illness was life-threatening. If not, it could wait till the next day. So, there they are, the religious police. They're watching and waiting to see what Jesus will do, seeking for using, to use some ammunition against him. And unlike his other healings, Jesus quite publicly calls the man forward and he says, stretch out your hand and completely restores it to full use. What further evidence is needed? For the Pharisees, these two incidents, picking corn, yellow card offence, healing on the Sabbath, red card offence, better do away with him. He's a heretic. It was no trivial matter. The Sabbath was a kind of litmus test for the whole of society. In fact, the common view among the rabbis was if God's people, Israel, kept, kept the Sabbath on one occasion altogether, the Messiah would come and God would bring in his kingdom. This man has broken all the rules. So, how does Jesus answer his critics? Once again, he challenges them about who he really is. Look at verses 27 and 28. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The issue with the Sabbath is one of authority. The American author and speaker, William Willimon, writes, The clash with authority is not over the rules, but over who rules. Not over the rules, but over who rules. So in answer to the question about picking ears of corn on the Sabbath, Jesus says to him, don't you remember that story? You know when King David was on the run from, uh, when David, before he was king, was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill him, the king, uh, and he arrived at the house of God, uh, and he and his men were very hungry, and in the house of God were these 12 loaves of bread that were laid out, consecrated bread for the use of the priests only. And they were very hungry and they ate them. And God didn't strike them down dead or condemn them. Now what is the point he's making? He's not saying God's law can be broken in emergencies. They wouldn't have died. No, the focus is on the people involved, the authority they had. David was allowed to do what he did because of who he was. He was the Lord's anointed. Now Jesus says, my kingdom, my authority is far greater than that. In respect of Sabbath law, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Famous commentator Vincent Taylor writes, since the Sabbath was made for man, he who is man's Lord and representative has authority to determine its laws and uses. I make the rules. I interpret them because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the healing of the man with the shriveled hand demonstrates this once more. Of course his life was not threatened. He'd had this shriveled hand probably for years. Our Lord could have said, look, sorry, 
Jesus travels today, come back tomorrow. Or he could have gone on one side and said, look, wait till these Pharisees are out of the way and there's no problem. I don't want to worry them too much. Let's just do it quietly and privately. In fact, if you read the Gospel accounts, I was trying to count up there's five or six miracles that Jesus did deliberately on the Sabbath day. He's making a point. To get the Pharisees to face up to a question. Why did God give his laws? Was it for good or bad? Evil or to do good? To save life or to kill? Now, they won't answer because if you say, well, God has given the Sabbath and you can't do good on the Sabbath, well, it's ridiculous. But he breaks the rules. They won't get out of their rules. They won't change their minds. And no wonder, see the reaction of Jesus. His mixed emotions says that Jesus was angry and filled with deep distress. The two things in perfect balance. We usually get them the wrong way around. Either all anger and no distress or all distress and no anger. He's distressed at their stubborn hearts. The word stubborn is the same word idea in the Old Testament. You remember when Pharaoh refused to obey God even though God sent those plagues. Each time his heart was stubborn and became hardened. He refused to accept that God was at work here in a remarkable way. They not only refuse to answer, they refuse to accept the evidence of who he is. Even when he heals the man, they don't say, well, he's healed the man, praise God. No. They now determine to do away with Jesus. Now notice the irony, which you can miss very easily here. They conspire with the Herodians. The Herodians were political operators. They had no religious convictions. They were only in it for what they could get out of it, the power. They were the most unlikely people for Pharisees to ever mix with. And these are the guys who want to be holy by disassociating themselves with anybody who's not religious or holy. So they make an alliance with the Herodians to kill Jesus and they do it on the seventh day. After this has happened, they say, right, let's have a subcommittee and get together with the Herodians. And on the Sabbath, they plan to do evil. The story's just full of irony. What a tragedy. They refuse to accept who Jesus really is. Okay, almost finished. Conclusion. We began with the first murder in human history and now we've come to the worst murder in human history already being planned. And I want to say that both of them were caused by religion. You see, essentially, you've probably heard there are lots of religions in the world. In one sense, yes, there are, but in actual fact, there are only two religions in the world. There's a religion of works represented by the Pharisees which says you must do all you can to gain God's favour. And the Pharisees were the prime, the best example possible because they were following God's law, not their own ideas. The other religion is a religion of grace where God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves by sending his son Jesus into the world to save us. Religion is about human beings trying to get to God. Christianity is about God reaching down to us in the person of his son. And these two religions are diametrically opposed to each other. There is no way you can make them mix together because as Jesus said, they will just tear each other apart. Torn garments, burst wineskins. That's why Jesus says that. You can't Mix the two things together. So, you may be saying, particularly if you're not a Christian, what's the answer? Let's go for the John Lennon option, you know? Imagine a world without religion. 
if it leads to so much conflict, we'd be better off without it. Listen, you cannot get rid of God that easily. And I tell you this, a world without religion and without God, without Jesus, would not be a world at all. It would be an evil world. It would be a non-world because Jesus sustains the world by his own power. No, the answer is not to get rid of religion. The answer is to make sure that you come to God through the way that he has chosen, not the one that you want to pick or devise. Through the one he has chosen, who alone can restore you to fellowship with himself. You see, there is one very important difference between those two murders, between Abel and Jesus. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the old religion. And in a wonderful chapter, chapter 12, the writer reminds them that they have come, and it's a very telling phrase, with this we finish. He says, you must, we have, if you're a Christian, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Know what that means? As Jesus has made a new, he's a mediator, the one who's organized a new, made a new agreement between human beings and God. And it's a message, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does he mean? The blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance, for restitution. The blood of Jesus, the only murder of a truly innocent man, speaks of mercy and grace. And forgiveness. This is the gospel. It's good news. I hope it's good news for you this morning. Let's pray together.